Congregation, turn with me for a moment to 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, verse 16, by way of introduction. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, where Peter writes, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So boys and girls, what does Peter mean by cunningly devised fables? So the best way for me to explain it to you is Peter says, we have not followed fairy tales. In other words, what we are proclaiming is not based on our imagination. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we are proclaiming a Christ that we have seen with our eyes. We are the eyewitnesses that he is risen indeed. And specifically, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And of course, the word majesty reminds us that Christ is not only the risen Savior, but he is the risen king of his church. And of course, Peter was thinking especially of that remarkable appearance of Christ, of which we will, uh, which we will consider with you this morning, as recorded in Matthew 28, the only appearance to all the disciples recorded by Matthew. And there they were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses to the majesty of Christ. And not only they, but as nearly all commentators unanimously believe, that that was the time when Christ appeared to the 500 of which Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's turn to our text for this morning, verses 16 through 18 of Matthew 28. Verses 16 through 18. And there we read God's word and our text. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth." And so we have here Christ's appearance, we could say Christ's royal appearance to his disciples in Galilee. First of all, we want to focus on the place of his appearance, because our text, as you can see, boys and girls, in verse 16, specifically tells us that the disciples went to Galilee because Jesus had appointed them to be there. He said, that's where I will meet you. So the place of his appearance. Secondly, the result of his appearance. Again, look at your text. Verse 17, what happened when he appeared? It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then finally, the comfort of his appearance. Because then he speaks to them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So Christ's appearance to his disciples in Galilee 
the place of his appearance, the result of his appearance, and the comfort of his appearance. Last week, congregation, we considered with you the evil plot that the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, devised to counter the story, the account of the resurrection, to counter what the soldiers who were guarding the grave had seen with their own eyes, had experienced in a most powerful and dramatic way. And rather than repenting, rather than recognizing the reality and the power of the risen Christ, they ran to their masters. And they too, instead of repenting, were all the more determined to continue to oppose the Messiah and to send a lie into the world to create a false narrative to counter the testimony of the disciples. And we saw last week how Satan was obviously the mastermind behind this, the prince of this world who continues until this day to create a narrative to counter the truth of God's word. The congregation, what's encouraging about the remainder of this chapter is to observe the truth of a, a rather well-known Dutch adage. And that is the adage that says, however swift the lie may be, the truth will gain the victory. However swift the lie will be, the truth will gain the victory. And then we observe in the remainder of the chapter what a, what a remarkable contrast between verses 11 through 15 and then what follows. And so this appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ is considered by, again, the vast majority of all commentators to be the crowning point of all his appearances, the greatest of all his post-resurrection appearances the only one recorded here by Matthew, and most likely an appearance that occurred after he had appeared many times already privately to his disciples. So this would have happened after his appearance to his disciples on the day of the resurrection, when he appeared to Peter, to Mary Magdalene, to the men from Emmaus, when he appeared to the disciples when they were behind closed doors. This would have been after uh, Jesus appeared to them on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And this most likely occurred shortly before he returned to heaven. Because as we will see next week, the Lord willing, that Christ then also gives to his disciples, specifically to his disciples, what we know as the Great Commission and that is the encouraging truth of the concluding verses of Matthew 28, is to recognize that though Satan never ceases to scheme to oppose the work of God, never ceases to scheme to counter the gospel and to delude the souls of men, is that Christ shall have dominion congregation over land and sea, earth's remotest regions, shall his empire be. The truth of the gospel will prevail. And so the Great Commission, as we will see next week, 
is designed to bring the gospel to the uttermost reaches of the world and thereby to counter the evil work of the prince of darkness. And so what the concluding verses of Matthew 28 clearly demonstrate is that ultimately the seed of the woman will prevail over the seed of the serpent. And of course that takes us all the way back to the very first gospel promise in Genesis 3. And it's been rightly argued, I believe, that ultimately the entire Bible is the unfolding of Genesis 3, verse 15. And here we see, as we will see also next week, how that Christ will use these men to whom he appears in Galilee to go forth into the world and to preach the gospel to every creature And by God's amazing grace and providence, we are the beneficiaries of that until this day. And so it says here, the 11 disciples went away into Galilee because they had been specifically directed by the Lord Jesus Christ to go to Galilee. In Matthew 26, 32, Christ told them, he said, but after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And as we've seen a few weeks ago, when the angels spoke to the women, they they reminded them of that promise that the Savior would appear to them in Galilee and that they should go and tell his disciples and remind them of these very words. And then Jesus himself, when he appears to his disciples again reminds them, or to the women rather, reminds them of that very same promise that tells us that this was highly significant. And of course, he initially did not appear to them in Galilee. Initially, he appeared to them, as we said already, when they were in the upper room, when they were behind closed doors. And what all of those appearances have in common they all had an element of surprise. Jesus surprised his disciples. He would suddenly stand in their midst and say, peace unto them. But this, this appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ was clearly prepared by Christ. It was stipulated by Christ. He had evidently given his disciples very precise instructions regarding both the place and the time where he would appear to them. Because, and if this is indeed correct, and I believe it is, if this was indeed his final appearance to them, his final major appearance, the very purpose of that appearance would be is to give them, reverently speaking, their marching orders. And so the disciples, they had returned to Galilee. And it's quite remarkable, congregation, that Jesus chose that location rather than Jerusalem to reveal himself in that unique unique and glorious way to his disciples and to many others, as we will see in a moment. Galilee was for them a very, very special place. We could say that Galilee was the place of origins. It was the place from which all of the disciples hailed, all of them. 
Maybe you've noticed here the fact that we're told that there were 11 disciples. So boys and girls, why 11? Why not 12? I think you know who was missing. Judas was missing. Sadly, Judas was missing. Judas, who had been with Jesus all those years. Judas, who had been so close to Christ. Judas, who had heard the preaching of Christ. Who, Judas, who was acquainted with the person of Christ. And yet Judas, who proved to be a counterfeit believer. Who, true, who proved to be ultimately not to be a true follower of Christ. That's, that in itself is a sobering truth, congregation. Because that we know from Christ's own teaching and from reality that so it will be as long as the world stands. That among those who profess the name of Christ, there will always be those whose profession is not genuine. And we have to realize that with Judas, that his act was so perfect that when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, that they all looked at each other and they said, Lord, is it I? So remarkable. So, in other words, his conduct was such that the disciples did not suspect him to be the case. And so he is the, the missing person. And so this is the place from which they originated. This is the place where Jesus also began his ministry. This is the place where he called them to follow him. This is the place that would remind them of who they once were. This is, and that, what, a, what a fitting place, therefore, for Jesus to give his disciples ultimately their marching orders. Oh, this whole area where they would be would remind them that they were but simple and humble fishermen. They would realize that Christ had called them out of that. Christ had drawn them with the cords of his love. Christ had bound them to himself. Not because there were any qualifications in them, for there were none. There's only one reason why they were the disciples of Jesus Christ. And that was because of the sovereign, distinguishing grace of God. And so being in Galilee would remind them that they could never glory in the flesh. There was, never, there was nothing to be proud of. As you know that in Jerusalem, in Judea, they, they looked down upon Galilee and they would sneeringly refer to it as Galilee of the Gentiles. It was, a, it was such a mixture in Galilee. And so they looked down upon it. And yet, it's from that region that Christ called his disciples. And it's there that he directs them to come. It is there that he will appear unto them. And it's very important that it says here, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Now, which mountain that was, we don't know. Um, and it always amazes me that when the Bible does not give us specific facts, that when you read your commentaries, that there is always a great deal of speculation as to what it might have been. 
But that's not important to know which mountain it was. What is important is that Christ directed them to a specific place. He specifically told them, this is where you must be. This is where I will meet you. This is the place of my appointment. And that in itself is rich with instruction. Because congregation, Christ still directs us to meet him in the way of his appointment. What's an obvious lesson to be learned from all of this is that when we obey the directions of Christ, when we meet him where he appoints us to be, that he will appear to us, that he will manifest himself to them, to us. So boys and girls, let me ask you something. Where do you think that place of appointment is today? Where is it that Christ will keep his appointment? Because that he did. Where is it that Christ will meet us today? And the answer is very simple. It's especially here in his house. It is especially under the ministry of the gospel. That's why the ministry of the gospel is so enormously important. That's why we may never be casual about our observance of the Lord's Day. That's why we may never be casual in our attendance upon the means of grace. For the fact that I stand here to proclaim God's word to you is by divine appointment. It is Christ, the King of the church, who is the one who drives all of this, who drives the ministry of his very own word. It is Christ who raises up his servants to proclaim his word on his behalf. It is ultimately Christ who meets with us through the preaching of his word, who walks among us, as Calvin was so fond of saying, who walks among us in the garments of his word. That's why we should never leave our place empty unless we have a legitimate reason for not being in the place of his appointment. That's why we may never, never view the worship service ever as a casual event. This is a momentous event to think it is here that Christ meets with us. It is here that Christ appears to us. It is here that Christ speaks to us, the place of his appointment. I don't think if a prominent politician or a prominent person in the community would invite you to meet with him, if you were to have an appointment with him, you would go out of your way to keep that appointment. You would go out of your way to honor that appointment. And why? Because of the person who has invited you to meet with him. And that is infinitely more true of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we should marvel every Lord's Day that we and our children may gather in this place And we should come with holy anticipation. We should come with prayerful anticipation to meet the risen Christ, 
who ministers to us through the ministry of word and of sacrament. And you see, and we could even expand this, and we could apply this to the whole Christian life. Why was it that the disciples met their master? They met him because they obeyed him. They obeyed his directive. There's a very close connection between, between encountering the risen Christ, experiencing the risen Christ, seeing the risen Christ, and an obedient life. And every believer has experienced this to a greater or lesser degree, that it's in the way of obedience when we honor God's precepts, when we honor His Word, when we walk in His ways, that Christ rewards us with His favor. He rewards us with His presence. He will never reward disobedience. And so when we are careless about our walk, when we don't take our walk with Christ seriously, when we don't interact with Him through His precious Word, when we don't seek to order our steps according to His Word, then we cannot expect to flourish spiritually. But the lesson that is learned from this particular story is a very important one, and that is this. Christ, Christ will not disappoint those who honor His Word. Christ will not disappoint those who meet Him in the way of His appointment, not only on the Lord's day, but if we, if we follow Him in the pathway of gospel obedience, if we seek His face, He will never put to shame those that seek Him. We've pointed that out already in previous uh, sermons, that seekers of Christ will always be finders of Christ. And so these disciples, these 11, of course, they came to Galilee. They came to this mountain filled with holy anticipation because they already had been privileged to meet with him on several occasions. And no doubt, having experienced those wonderful events, heightened their longing, heightened their desire to see him once again. Congregation, that's true for every believer, is that the more we know of Christ, the more we encounter Him, the more we experience His amazing love, the more the Holy Spirit directs us to behold Christ unveiled to us in the gospel, the more precious He becomes, and the more we will long and yearn to see him again. And they were not disappointed. Because we read in verse 17, that brings us to our second point, the result of this appearance. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. What a beautiful statement again. So simple, and yet so rich, and so profound. They saw him. Congregation. That's, again, that's the heartbeat 
of true religion. That's the heartbeat of true experience. To see Jesus. To be able to see him again and again. To be able to see him with the eyes of faith. And again, I want to emphasize, there is no greater joy to the believer than to see him afresh. No greater joy as when again the scales fall from our eyes and when again the Holy Spirit redirects us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit sheds light on who he is, unveiled to us in his word. Oh, that fills the heart with unspeakable joy. In John 20, verse 20, we read, this was on the day of the resurrection, this very simple statement that affirms what I just said. It says, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. And dear believer, tell me, have you not found it to be so? When are the moments in your life, when are the moments of greatest joy? Are they not? When you may perceive something of the beauty and of the glory and of the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can say that that's what is the common denominator of all believers. Because as we will see in a moment, there were some who worshipped and there were some who doubted. In other words, this was a gathering of those who, some who had a, a greater knowledge of Christ, who had interacted more with him as the disciples did. They had seen him several times. And then the 500 who had not yet seen the risen Christ and who doubted, who didn't quite know what to make of all this. I will get to that in a moment. But I want to make this point. Is So in other words, we could say in the context of today, we had more advanced believers who had more acquaintance with Christ, who had seen him more often, and those who had not yet seen him so often. But they had one thing in common. And that is they loved Christ. What is it that brought ultimately those 500 to Galilee? Well, no doubt the disciples had spread the word. And that tells us, that's why we also read 1 Corinthians 15, that during Christ's ministry, it, it wasn't just the 11 or 12 that followed him. There was a far greater number. And so evidently, the majority of the followers of Christ, the majority of the believers of Christ, lived in Galilee. And the eleven spread the word that their master had promised them that on that day and on that place he would appear to them. And they all came. They all gathered. Because they had one common desire. They had one common longing. Even though the disciples had already seen him several times. But what united them, the common denominator, is that their heart yearned for Christ. Their heart longed for Christ. Congregation, that's the basic mark. Let me say it again. By which we need to examine ourselves. The question is not, how have you been led until this moment? The question is not, what are all the details of your spiritual experience? But what matters is, what do you think of Christ? 
Is your heart drawn to Christ? Is this Christ precious to you? Does he mean more to you than anything else in the world? Can you say, for me, to behold the beauty of Christ, for me to see him as he is revealed to us in the gospel, that's what makes my heart glad. Because that's how the Spirit works. His goal, as we have said many times already, his goal is to take out of Christ and to show it unto us. His goal is to glorify him also in the hearts and lives of his people. It is the Spirit of God who so works in our hearts that we cannot be satisfied with anything else but Christ who so works in us that Christ alone becomes our hope. Christ alone becomes our salvation. He becomes the chief delight of our soul. So boys and girls, let me give you a very simple illustration that helps you understand why every believer, no matter whether they are young believers or old believers, whether they are new believers or whether they are experienced believers, whether they are strong believers or whether they are weak believers. Why? That they are always, they are they're drawn to Christ. Now, you know, when you have a magnet, that iron is attracted to a magnet. As a matter of fact, if you have iron dust... If you take a powerful magnet and you move that magnet over that dust, it will just fly to the magnet. It cannot but move towards the magnet. And so the Lord Jesus is that great magnet, that great magnet to which all of God's people are drawn, irresistibly drawn. So it was with those who gathered here. Oh, what a joyful moment it was for the disciples to see their Lord again. They took him at his word, and he did not disappoint them. And he will never disappoint those who trust in him. Dear believer, tell me, tell me in spite of all of your ups and downs, tell me in spite of all of your struggles, has this Savior ever disappointed you? Has he ever, ever failed to prove to be who he says he is? Have you not found him to be true to his word and often to be better than his word? The disciples took him in his word and they met Christ. Oh, his word cannot fail. His promises cannot fail. They are yea and amen in him. To put it even more strongly, the risen Christ is, after all, the living Word of God. His remarkable identity that John gives him, he is the living Word of God. And as the living Word of God, he is the warranty of his written Word. As the living Word of God, he will see to it that his written Word will not ever fail. And that's why we can have such confidence in the written word. Because the written word is the word of the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens when they see him? It says they worshipped him. 
and some doubted. So let me first look, talk about the worshiping. They worshiped him. What that simply means is they fell down before him. That's how in that culture especially you would express your profound respect. Especially when you came into the presence of important and noteworthy people. Especially if you were to come into the presence of the king. So when in Psalm 2 in the last verse, when it says, kiss the son, that's something that the Jewish people would have understood very well. If you were privileged to come and meet the king and come into his presence, you would bow and you would kiss his feet to express your reverence and your respect for him. It's the first time that we read about the disciples who had been in his company that they actually worshipped him. What does that imply? Is that by now, after having seen him several times, he had appeared to him several times, more than ever, the disciples were now convinced of his divinity. And they, thereby worshiping him, they acknowledged his divinity. In other words, what had dawned on Thomas when Christ appeared to them on the second, on a week later, a week after the resurrection, and when, God, when Christ revealed his omniscience to Thomas, and then Thomas breaks forth in this wonderful confession, my Lord and my God. He worshipped him. He acknowledged him for who he was. And so they fall to the ground to express how much he meant to them. They fell to the ground to honor him. Congregation. That will always be the fruit of seeing Jesus. That will always be the fruit of every exercise of faith. We saw it with the women. When Jesus met them, we read about them, that they worshipped him as well. And so the exercise of faith, and when by, by faith we may afresh have a new view of Christ, when again we may experience the wonder of his word, the beauty of his person, then we, we cannot but worship. I would venture to say that any experience that does not culminate in worship is not real, is not the work of the Holy Spirit. True experience, a true experiential encounter with Christ as this was, cannot but produce worship. But then you ask, well, why did some of them doubt? So there are a number of opinions about what that means. Is this the same doubt that Thomas had? In other words, Thomas did not believe what he heard. He questioned what he heard. And because of his unbelief, he stayed home. And he was miserable for a whole week until Christ appeared to him. Is that the kind of doubt? I don't believe so. Is it a doubt of a, an unbeliever? Of course, an unbeliever uh, wickedly, as the Pharisees and scribes, wickedly reject the word of God. That's not the kind of doubt. Is this the doubt of a believer who at times is not sure of his or her salvation? And that's very real. God's children from time to time struggle with doubt. Sometimes more, sometimes less. 
that may have been part of it. But if indeed, and I, I would concur with the vast majority of commentators, if indeed this was the moment described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, because frankly, there is no other account in the Gospels that relates to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. And so I believe wholeheartedly that the some who doubted was this, this gathering of 500 And you see, they had not yet met the risen Christ. And so there was something about the risen Christ which was so overwhelming that they initially may not have recognized him, even though they may have followed him before his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. But we have to realize that Christ arose with a glorified body. And that's very evidently, that glory began to be very visible already. That's why time and again we read about the disciples even not initially recognizing their master until he made himself known. And so something of the glory that John saw on the island of Patmos when the exalted Christ appeared to him, some of that glory was no doubt visible here as well. And that's why they were doubted. They were were simply overwhelmed by what they saw. To put it very simply, they had never seen their master in this way. They had never seen him enveloped by this glory that so evidently shone round about him. But then it's so beautiful what we then read. In verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and he spake to them. Now, the word came here in the Greek implies that he drew near to them. To put it very simply, boys and girls, Jesus came as close to these people as he could. He, he drew near to them so that they could almost touch him. They could see his countenance. But then most importantly, he speaks to them. And once he spoke to them, that's what happened to John on the island of Patmos. Oh, they knew that voice. They recognized that voice. And when they heard his voice, all doubts vanished. What a beautiful illustration again of who Christ continues to be. This is what he does. His delight is to draw near to his people to come near to us so that we can see him, we can behold him. Of course, not physically. Believers today do not see Christ visually. We do not experience his physical presence. But we see him by faith, with the eye of faith. And that's what Jesus delights to do. He knows exactly what our spiritual frame is. He knew there were worshipers and there were doubters. There were those who had met him several times. There were those who needed further instruction. And oh, it is the ministry of Christ until this day to meet and to minister to the needs of his people, to to, to minister to the individual needs of his children. And so this risen Christ, he knows exactly how you came to the house of God today. 
He knows exactly what your struggles are. He knows exactly whether you have come, perhaps, to the house of God, having struggled with doubts. He knows, perhaps, whether because of your ignorance you've lost sight of him. He knows all of that. But, oh, he is the great physician. He loves to heal the wounds of his people. He loves to provide a spiritual remedy for all of our spiritual needs. And so how does Jesus resolve the doubt? Oh, he resolves that doubt by drawing near to them and by speaking to them. Because let me reassure you, congregation, Christ does not want his people to live in doubt. Even though doubting is a reality of the Christian life, and I realize that some of believers doubt more than others do, but doubt is not a virtue. Doubt is a reality, but doubt is not a virtue. Because when we doubt, when we doubt, we are suspecting the Lord in his truth, in his faithfulness, and in his love. And a true believer will grieve over their doubt. They will grieve over the fact that we are so easily inclined to doubt the love and the faithfulness of our Savior. And Jesus knows that. He knows how weak and frail we are. He knows how often Satan tries to sift us as wheat. And so the Jesus who said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, that's the same Jesus here who draws near to his people, who comes close to them, who speaks to them, who reveals himself to them. Oh, it is the delight of your Savior, dear child of God, is to reassure you time and again through his word. It is his desire that through the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, that you would hear his voice, that you would be reassured, that you would be established. And the only way we can become established in our faith is by having a fresh encounter with the risen Christ by means of the ministry of his word. So let me say it again. It is Christ's desire that you be assured of your salvation. That should be the norm of the Christian life. We don't want to overreact so far to the other side that we disparage anyone who struggles with doubt. Far be it from me that I would ever disparage anyone who struggles with doubt. I struggle with doubt. But it is the desire of Christ to deliver us from it. It is his desire to reassure us. His desire is to draw near to us and to speak comfortably, comfortably to our soul, which is the reason why Isaiah and all of God's servants have the sacred calling to comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem. Declare unto them that their warfare is accomplished, that their iniquity is pardoned, they have received double for all their sins. That's the Jesus here who draws near and speaks to his disciples. And then finally, he makes this remarkable statement. 
He says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. We could say that this was a fresh revelation of who he was. Christ was teaching them something new that they needed to understand. What Christ was instructing them about is that now that he had accomplished his father's work, now that he had finished that work, now that he had risen again as the affirmation of his father's approval of what he had accomplished. He now wanted to teach them and to instruct them that he is now their exalted mediator. That because he has accomplished the work his father gave him to do, that now as a reward upon his mediatorial work, that his father has now vested him with all power in heaven and on earth. The Apostle Paul beautifully expresses that in Philippians 2. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians 2. Let's read verses 2 or 8 through 10. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 10. Philippians 2. There we read, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, his humiliation. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Because you might ask the question, why did Jesus say this? Did he not already have all power in heaven and earth as the eternal Son of God? Of course he did. In his divine nature, as the Son of God, he is equal to the Father. And so in that sense, he already had all power in heaven and on earth. But here Christ is speaking as mediator. He is now explaining to his disciples and to us that as a reward upon his mediatorial work, that as mediator, he is now vested by his Father with all power in heaven and on earth. And of course, when we consider the ascension in a few weeks, then we actually have the, the event where the mediator is crowned, the day of his coronation. But Christ already anticipates this. All power is given to me, given by his Father as a reward upon his finished work. It's implied in Psalm 2. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And what we need to understand, congregation, that also in his exaltation, the man Christ Jesus, the glorified man Christ Jesus, had to be sustained by his divine nature to be able to take on the weighty task of being entrusted with the government of the entire universe. So in his humiliation, his divine nature sustained him in his suffering, but also in his exaltation as the exalted Christ, as the exalted mediator. It is his divine nature that sustains him and enables him to be 
the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. I hope to say more of it next week. I will just be very brief here. But what an encouragement declaration that is. A, a declaration that should inspire us with confidence today. There's so much that alarms us today. There's so much that unsettles us. There's so much that makes us fearful when we think of the future, when we think of our children and our grandchildren. Let's remember, we serve a risen Christ, and He is in absolute sovereign control of all that's happening in the world. And He will see to it that His work will be accomplished. All the forces of hell will not succeed in preventing the coming of His kingdom. And so therefore we could say that in His exaltation, Christ will apply what He has merited in His humiliation. Let me repeat that. In His exaltation, He applies what He has merited in His humiliation. That's why on the eve of His crucifixion, he could say in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 2, Thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And so this Christ is the one who until this day gathers his church, governs his church, guards his church, protects his church. This is the Christ who said to his disciples, again on the eve of his crucifixion, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is the Christ who will triumph over Satan. His ultimate defeat was secured already on the cross of Calvary. And the Word of God tells us that for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so Christ is in charge. The history of this world ultimately does not belong to the power brokers of this world. History is his story. All power in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. And dear believer, this is a savior who is invested in your spiritual well-being. This is a Savior who will not forsake the work of His hands. This is a Savior who cares for you, who provides for you, who sustains you, who upholds you, to whom all power in heaven and on earth has been given. Oh, that means that nothing is beyond the control of our sovereign King. That's why even in the Old Testament, the psalmist could say in Psalm 34, verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. Christ shall have dominion over land and sea. Earth's remotest regions shall his empire be. And that's why the future is in his hands. It's not the prince of this world, but it's in his hands. That's why he could say confidently in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell shall never be able to prevail against his blood-bought church. 
the church of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And so, my dear congregation, have you met him? Do you know this Christ? Is this Christ the focal point of your life? Is this Christ the one to whom your heart is drawn? Is this Christ you long for? Is this the Christ you desire? Is this the Christ who is the sole foundation of your hope? To see him is that your greatest delight. Do you know what it means by faith to see him? And then to worship him and to embrace him. And then to follow him in the pathway of obedience. Because that's ultimately what follows, of course, this remarkable passage. That to the ones who worship him, the ones to whom he reveals himself, the one who he gives them a commission. In that sense, every Christian has a sacred commission. And that is to honor the Christ who has redeemed us. To honor the Christ who so graciously reveals himself to us, who strengthens us, who upholds us, who encourages us, who draws near to us, who speaks to us. And so I ask you, boys and girls, young people, what do you think of this Christ? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank thee that also this morning again, we had the privilege to be here in thy appointed place. Because we are here because of thy appointment with us. Oh, what a comfort that is to know that when we come here, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to know that thou, the risen Christ, that thou dost continue to draw near to us, to reveal thyself to us, to speak to us. And Lord, may we have heard his voice today. We pray that we too would go homeward, that we would worship the Christ whom we have beheld in the gospel. Go with us now as we return to our homes. Bless the instruction that will be given one more time following this service. And we pray that also in this evening hour, we would again long to come to this place of thy divine appointment. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.